Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Hussein Haqqani uh, from the Hudson Institute. Uh, I uh, am part of the South and Central Asia program here uh, at Hudson. Uh, we are very uh, pleased today to have a uh, full house and an excellent panel uh, to discuss the India-United States relationship. Uh, it was about 2004 when the first time the term strategic partnership was used in relation uh, to the India-U.S. relationship. Even earlier, way back in 1948, uh, the Truman administration spoke about a natural partnership with India. And yet, uh, the history of the last six decades has not shown a, a, the, the realization of that full potential. The natural partnership has not necessarily progressed as a natural partnership. Uh, there have been issues on both sides. Um, now, of course, uh, we have a, a new prime minister in India that has raised hopes for uh, a revived relationship, uh, a better and more robust relationship. And it has several dimensions, the economic not being uh, uh, less important than the political and the military. And we have a stellar uh, panel here today to discuss that. Uh, I'll, I will introduce everyone just by name. You all know their bios. Uh, and we will have a discussion in which they will all give their thoughts on specific questions that have been or specific themes that have been framed for them. So to my immediate left is uh, Sadhanand Dhume, uh, who is at the uh, American Enterprise Institute, uh, writes for the Wall Street Journal, uh, and <clears throat> has worked as a foreign correspondent for the Far Eastern Economic Review in India and Indonesia, and was a Bernard Schwartz Fellow at the Asia Society. To his left, not necessarily politically, uh, <laughs> is... Bruce Rydell, a dear friend uh, and um, uh, a scholar and uh, uh, a very well-known analyst who has 30 years of service uh, from the, uh, you know, uh, with the Central Intelligence Agency. He is senior fellow and director of the Brookings Intelligence Project, which is part of Brookings' new Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence. Uh, he has advised presidents. Um, he, has, uh, 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 he has been involved uh, with uh, understanding the region that we are talking about and has uh, in-depth understanding of that region. Next to Bruce is Alyssa Ayers. She is a senior fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. She served most recently as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia uh, at the State Department during 2010-2013. Prior to serving in the Obama administration, she led the India and South Asia practice at McLarty Associates, the Washington-based international strategic advisory firm. She was trained originally as a cultural historian, and she has experience in the nonprofit, government, and private sectors, and has carried out research on both India and Pakistan. And she's also the author of one of the best books on Pakistan uh, uh, in the context of how the Pakistani nation was forged. So she uh, will be uh, talking to us uh, about uh, India today. And then we have Tanvi Madan, who is a fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution and director of the India Project there. Uh, her work explores Indian foreign policy, focusing in particular on India's relations with China and the United States. Uh, she also researches the intersection between Indian energy policies and its foreign and security policies. 
at the far end of this table is Ambassador Pradeep Kapoor. Uh, he's a visiting clinical professor in the School of Public Policy at University of Maryland. He began his career as a diplomat in 1981 in Spain uh, and went on uh, to have postings as a career diplomat from India in Tanzania, Paris, and Nepal. In 1991, Ambassador Kapoor was selected as UN Fellow with a Third World Diplomat Award under which he taught at Georgetown University. Uh, he was also India's ambassador to Cambodia and served as India's ambassador to Chile from 2009 to 2013. So let's get our discussion underway. Uh, among the things we will try to address is, will India and America be able to forge the strategic partnership that they have spoken of, but that they have not been able to create uh, under Prime Minister Modi? And the visit that he's having here, I know that there are some elements of the media that are more focused on um, uh, stuff like whether he will be fasting while he's here uh, or, or uh, partaking of American food. Uh, but I think we are more interested in the more substantive questions of uh, what does it mean? Will this one visit actually be uh, the catalyst for major transformation of the relationship? And I would request Ambassador Kapoor to go first. Uh, I would like him to start the discussion rolling with a discussion on the overall conceptualization of India's foreign policy. How does India and the Indian foreign policy establishment view ties with the United States? Have views changed sufficiently from the, uh, uh, the, uh, the opinions that were forged in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, when India was non-aligned and America was looking for allies against communism. So how far have things changed, and how do Indians now view the U.S.-India relationship? Ambassador Kapoor. Uh, <clears throat> Thank you very much, Ambassador Hakani. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to see all of you here and to recognize uh, quite a few friends in this group. Uh, I would like to welcome the media also. There has been a lot of uh, interest. There's, there has been a lot of uh, um, uh, media interest, business interest, business from, uh, interest from various other sectors all over Washington, all over USA on this visit. Uh, as Ambassador Akani has set me a very difficult task of uh, analyzing these relations uh, in a historical perspective and seeing where we come from and where do we go. Uh, try to uh, do it in a way that gives us a platform to proceed on our discussion. Uh, India has been always viewing uh, the you know, USA uh, in a very idealistic sort of manner for a long time. Before our independence in 1947, USA was one of the important countries in the Committee of Nations which kept on nudging the United Kingdom, the colonial power, to give India its freedom. They gave a platform to our independence fighters like Mahatma Gandhi. They gave access to the media to propagate their views on Indian independence. 
Now, these were very important factors which ultimately led to our getting independence from the British in 1947 in August. And since that time onwards, uh, Indians at the level of the civil society has had a very favorable and positive view of the United States. Soon after our independence, again, and even before the independence, in 1945, the U.S. opened its embassy in Delhi and allowed India to open up a mission here in Washington, D.C., even as a non-independent country. So that was another very significant gesture, which is not forgotten by the Indians. Thereafter, by 1947, the Indian contribution to the global economy, to the global uh, growth GDP had fallen from a very high percentage of about 28, 150 years back to less than 2% after this colonial era. And we were not even dependent in terms of growing our own food grains. Again, the US played a very significant role the PL-480 shipments of food grains would come in. And the joke in those days in Delhi was that India is living from the ships to the lips. Because if there was a delay of a ship for a few days, it would make the situation quite critical. And then, again, in the matter of Green Revolution, the U.S. contribution was very significant. So, in all these factors, the nuclear establishment in India was set up primarily with the aid we got from Canada and the USA. And if I start listing out the sectors in which a country at its nascent stage, when it is looking for a lot of handholding, got the assistance that was very critical for its growth, for its stability, for its future, uh, it's very vast. So, and that has only expanded over time. Now, I'll jump to today's date because if I go over it step by step, I'll be exceeding a lot of my time and other people's time. What do we have today? We have two of the most important countries in the world in so many different ways for the future of the world. India is the largest democracy. India brings a lot to the table. India is a civilizational power. India has the strength of its civilization of 5,000 years or 10,000 years behind it. India has contributed globally to the growth of the world in different sectors, in so many different areas. India is today at a point where it's going to become a very important driver of the global economy. We have had elections recently, defying all predictions and all the bettings all over the world and all the bets placed in America, in India, in the Arab world, that no party will come back with a majority. And even the, the alliance which will come back with a majority, either of the two alliances, will just scrape through with the majority. And the results 
which came out were absolutely different no single bet was placed anywhere in the world for for just to put the record uh, right that modi and his party the bjp will get an absolute majority by itself they got an absolute majority an overwhelming majority their alliance got 333 out of 545 seats which was unprecedented which was absolutely unpredicted so what do we get today is a leader who has a very good track record a very proven track record as the the chief minister of gujarat he served for 14 years he has taken the state forward in every sector he is a very pragmatic leader he is a very strong leader he is a very clear headed leader he has got his vision of india and he has got the parliamentary support so he can take decisions today which earlier were not possible because if you are part of an alliance part of a coalition you always need the support of the coalition parties the coalition partners you cannot make any announcements for any policy decisions or any reforms or any changes in your uh, you know interest to move ahead on different sectors fdi investments outward uh, flows on business uh, rules and regulations uh, but if you have this sort of majority there are various areas in which you can take decisions and move ahead much faster so the and half of the aspects of growth of a nation are dictated by sentiments by the you know hopes by the aspirations by the expectations by the feelings so you have a country of 1.25 billion which has elected a leader with such a massive majority and now he is poised to take india out of its stupor of the last 5 years particularly and again lead from the front on the american side on the us side you have again a leader like obama who's again got a lot of these attributes a very pragmatic leader a very strong leader a very clear headed leader and he has got more than 2 years of his tenure still left so i think both these countries are poised for an orbital jump in their relations when i say orbital jump it is not a far fetched uh, expectation because orbital jump is you go from one orbit to the other you are not going from the earth to an orbit so there have been expectations in the past which have not been fulfilled because both the countries have a lot of excessive expectations of each other we are both very democratic we have a very strong systems of governance the parliament in india is very strong the media in india is very strong the civil society in india is very strong similarly on the us side the institutions are very strong the congress the senate the judiciary i have been here all of 3 weeks and 3 days so i still have to learn my way around again i was last year about 24 years back and for 35 years i was serving the indian diplomacy from the years 1979 onwards in various capacities in all the continents of the world and i retired as secretary to the government of india very recently so now i'm working in the university of maryland 
as a professor in the School of Public Policy. And the areas where we have very intense discussions going on with the American side span more than anything anybody in this room can ever imagine. And when I start reading about it, I myself, a practitioner of diplomacy, who was Deputy Secretary of Americas in the Ministry of External Affairs in New Delhi, at one stage during my stint in India. When I see where it is today, it comes as a very pleasant surprise and shock to me to see how far we have gone ahead, how far we have expanded, how far we have intensified our relations in every sector, in every sphere. There is hardly any sector I can imagine where we are not engaged in a very intensive manner with projects, with dialogues, with interactions, with exchanges, with visits with the US. So if we were to just go by what we are doing actually on the ground, any analyst would feel, oh my goodness, what a beautiful relationship. Thank you, Ambassador but, Kapoor. I think we are coming to the close <laughs> of, the, of the time window. But so let we, me just we, finish we by this. mentioning the areas only, yeah. so that that will lead to the discussion uh, further. Uh, we have uh, collaboration in cyber security, in homeland security, in defense. India is the largest buyer of American uh, weapons in the world. Education, public health, human capital growth, energy, environment, infrastructure, urban development, civilian space cooperation, nuclear cooperation, humanitarian and disaster relief operations, re responses and operations, gas, Mars mission, um, space exploration, and I, as I mentioned, biotechnology, and the other aspect which also is contributing very significantly is the Indian diaspora here. And uh, I will now stop here so that we can then take it on again thank at the stage think, of questions and answers. Will, thank you. Will, yeah, thank you. With with 10-minute presentations and then we will open it up for discussion. That's that's going to create a much better uh, environment for, for a discussion. Alyssa, I would go next to you. Uh, basically, I think we need to hear an argument from the American side as to why relations with India are important. You worked on this relationship. You would know that. Uh, but just just a summary summary of what the American administration can or should do uh, to build closer ties, especially in the economic area, because that's where there's potential is huge. Everybody talks about it, uh, but it's an unrealized potential. And most of us would agree that the potential is unrealized. There's an American perspective to it. There's an Indian perspective to it. Uh, how can uh, America walk uh, sort of the few steps forward that would then enable India? to walk its part and for them to meet somewhere in the middle. Please go ahead. Thank you, Hussein. I've just put my stopwatch on here, so I'll be tracking the time. And don't <coughs> hesitate to let me know if I go over it. Sure. Uh, I'm very happy to be here today. We've got a great audience. Uh, thanks to Ambassador Kapoor for setting things up so nicely. I would also like to note that this is the first time I've ever appeared on a panel with Mr. Dume, who's my husband. So this is a first. Let's see if there's any disagreement later on in the conversation. Um, my only request would be not to carry the disagreement uh, too far when you get back home. <laughs> exactly. We so, like you two together. <laughs> so I was asked to speak about the U.S. perspective on why relations with India are important to the United States. I thought that Ambassador Kapoor laid out a very good rationale for why relations with the United States are important for India. So I don't have to make that uh, argument this morning. Um, why relations are, with India are important for the United States? 
we now have, I think, a consensus in Washington on that count uh, that India's rise is in the strategic interests of the United States and that the U.S. is making a long-term bet on India's rise. In fact, there, there really is no significant disagreement. Is this, do I need to pull it closer? Okay. There really is no significant disagreement uh, on a partisan basis uh, throughout Washington on this question. Uh, you see uh, you know, three consecutive administrations working very hard to further the relationship with India. Uh, this is really built on the premise that the rise of a democratic, stable, pluralistic, market-oriented economy, India, is inherently in the national interests of the United States, uh, will help uh, assure the balance of power in Asia, that we in India share common goals in the fight against terrorism. Uh, I would commend to all of you the superb new essay that Ashley Tellis has just released from the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, he goes into the strategic argument at length. So I was asked to speak more specifically uh, in our panel today about economic relations between the United States and India uh, and what the U.S. could do to build closer ties with India. If I had been asked to speak about what uh, India could do to build a closer economic ties with the United States, my list would look a little bit different. So maybe we can go into some of that in Q&A. Uh, but, but there are some things that I think the U.S. can do. Uh, certainly India's new prime minister, Mr. Modi, seeks to get Indian economic growth back on track. That was uh, a key element of the BJP's campaign this year. Um, there are early signs of a growth uptick. We have not yet begun to see what many would describe as the Big Bang reforms. People are still waiting for that. It's only been you know, a little bit more than 100 days, still early days. Uh, but I do want to acknowledge very frankly up front that the past couple years, and particularly the last year, uh, in U.S.-India relations has been dominated with stories of disappointment, particularly on the trade and economic front. So it's an area with great potential, uh, but one in which there have been substantial frictions over the course of the last couple years. I, I can't pretend in this context that the U.S. companies, business associations, Capitol Hill, uh, haven't been angry about some of the developments in India. So uh, we need to get back on track, uh, but there have been some hurdle, hurdles to overcome. The previous government of India was very focused on implementing large welfare schemes. Growth began to slow, and, and even worse, some new policies got instituted in India that ended up driving investment away and made the business environment quite difficult and also unpredictable. And just name a couple of those, retrospective taxation, uh, local content requirements uh, applied on imports, arbitrary policies in the communication space, and as many would be familiar with here, a patent system that many U.S. companies have found uh, a very lengthy process and one that's quite difficult to work within. Uh, I'll come back to some of those concerns later. I, I wanted to also highlight something that doesn't receive as much attention uh, in our, our policy community and in the media, and that's some quiet areas of success that showcase where U.S.-India economic cooperation is going very well. First of those, and I would say foremost among those, is clean energy collaboration. We don't always think of this uh, as an economic area of cooperation, but it certainly is. It's core for energy security, economic security, uh, environmental sustainability of both countries. Uh, the U.S.-India collaboration on clean energy is one of the biggest successes of the last five years, using a public-private partnership model. Challenge grants from the U.S. government and the Indian government have created a joint clean energy research consortium. Uh, working on alternative energies, green buildings, uh, more than $2 billion has been mobilized on this front, and there's more work underway in the private sector. 
Obviously, there's more that can be done in this space, and there's a huge opportunity here, I think, with the new Indian government. Uh, the new prime minister has spoken about his focus on India's infrastructure development and also on smart cities. So there's a lot that can be done on the smart city front that would make use of clean energy and new technologies there. India's in a position where it can leapfrog now uh, to clean tech as it grows and builds out this $1 trillion infrastructure need over the course of the ne next decade. That's something that will be important to both countries, uh, supporting India's growth and also supporting the technology and the knowledge of U.S. companies <coughs> that have developed some pretty cool technologies in the clean energy space. I also want to mention, as I like to mention, again, this doesn't get the kind of attention I wish it would, is the great collaboration between India and the United States in science and technology. Again, doesn't always come up in conversations about economics uh, and trade, but S&T is a really important piece and a great success story between India and the United States. Last night's announcement uh, of the successful launch, uh, well, rather, the successful um, moving into the Mars orbit of India's Mangalyaan, the Mars Orbiter mission, uh, is a great example of that. It's a great example of India's uh, capacity to do frugal, successful technology. Uh, the Mangalyaan was created and launched in uh, the talking point is less than the cost of moving, making the movie Gravity, so uh, an incredible accomplishment. But NASA also has uh, a participating role in this. They've got some instruments that are on the Mangalyaan that will be able to send back information home uh, about the uh, atmosphere on Mars. So that's pretty cool and exciting. Uh, also in S&T, uh, a lot of U.S. S&T research resides in the private sector, in our universities, uh, in our companies, and there are informal collaborations that are going very, very well across the higher ed space uh, and in companies. Our national labs are now learning to work together. Uh, I should note also that India, the government of India, will be hosting uh, a science and technology summit in November, and this year the United States is the partner country for that. The third thing I'd like to mention is that despite the many problems uh, over the course of the last couple years in economics and trade, it's now the case that U.S. companies virtually all have an India strategy. You couldn't say that 15 years ago, but you have to say that now. We might hear more complaints at this point because growth has slowed and there have been problems, uh, but India has become important to U.S. corporate strategy in a way that just really wasn't the case uh, half a generation ago. Trade has been doubling every five years, now around $100 billion a year in both goods and services. Last summer, Vice President Biden called to try to quintuple, take that level of two-way trade up to $500 billion. Um, is that achievable? Well, uh, there's a ways to go, obviously, but if you look at what U.S.-China trade is in goods, it's about 10 times what U.S.-India goods trade is, uh, so there's a lot of room for growth. So what can the U.S. government do to try to enhance uh, economic relations with India? Uh, I've got a few things that I've been thinking about and that I've written about over the course of the past couple months, and so I'll just briefly touch on those here. First of all, it's critically important on the trade front, where, again, we do have some challenges, to find a shared agenda for collaboration. Uh, among the low-hanging fruit, certainly uh, one of these would be to get the Trade Policy Forum, which is a bilateral forum for conversation at the cabinet level about trade issues, uh, back on track. This has not met in nearly four years, and it needs to meet again. It's my understanding that people are looking for an opportunity to reschedule a meeting uh, for the Trade Policy Forum later this year. The second in the low-hanging fruit category, I would say, would be to – many have argued this, so this is not unique. In fact, there's kind of broad agreement on this matter uh, – quickly complete a bilateral investment treaty. 
uh, these are called bits. A bit has been under discussion between the United States and India really for a decade at this point. Uh, it's been hampered by the problem, in fact, a shared problem, that both the United States and India decided to reevaluate the templates for their own model bits. And unfortunately, both governments did this in a consecutive manner. So, you know, while the United States was reevaluating how it negotiated its own bits and took a look at the template, negotiations couldn't move forward. And while then, once the U.S. process was completed, India began its own process. So, uh, this is really something that could be uh, an important step in looking at ways to further the trade and investment relationship, and it needs to be put back on track and concluded quickly. Uh, I've argued elsewhere that the United States should support Indian membership in APEC. I believe that this is an important, uh, uh, in fact, critical move that the U.S. should make. Uh, we have a little bit of a political challenge at this point, and that relates to the fact that at the end of July, the government of India decided uh, not to ratify a very difficultly negotiated treaty under the WTO, the Trade Facilitation Agreement. Uh, and the problem that that has now created is that India is seen as a, a country that may not be willing to uphold its agreements and might be a difficult partner in a multilateral context. I think some time needs to elapse on this one. Uh, I still believe that the economic argument holds. India is a huge economy. It dwarfs some of the economies of the Asia-Pacific that are members of APEC, like Papua New Guinea. India should certainly be a member. Right now, I do believe that's a little bit of a political tough sell in the U.S., but we should look to support Indian membership at some point. Uh, because of this problem of that trade facilitation agreement, lack of ratification in India, it's also a little bit difficult at the moment to see how we could move on a more ambitious agenda with India, like a, a free trade agreement, which some have argued for, or even down the line looking at ways to pull India into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If uh, Prime Minister Modi spurs the reform and the growth that many do expect from him, uh, I hope that we'll see a growing consensus in the United States for a stronger trade framework with India. It's important in the long term. Uh, at present, both India and the United States are pursuing different kinds of trade agreements with others that exclude each other. So it ends up leaving us both out in the cold with each other. Let me offer uh, another comment uh, about something that the United States could do. I've written about this elsewhere. India has some complaints about the way the visa process works in the United States. We need to be able to offer some progress on, on this matter. It concerns India greatly. We probably can't satisfy all of Indians' concerns. Uh, but one thing that we could do, well, First, I should note that the situation is actually a little bit more positive than many critics suggest. The United States receives the largest number of temporary workers from India, going more to the United States than anywhere else in the world. Of all the temporary workers on the category of visa known as H-1Bs, which comes up for a lot of criticism in India, uh, India actually receives 64% of all the H-1Bs that are issued by the United States. So 64% of all H-1Bs issued globally. The next closest country on that count is China at just 8%. So it really does illustrate how this, this relationship between the United States and India is much stronger than a lot of the criticism would suggest. But I do think that even in the context of a very difficult environment on Capitol Hill where uh, comprehensive immigration reform doesn't look like it's going anywhere for some time, certainly uh, won't even be considered until after the November elections, Perhaps uh, people could take a look at lifting the H-1B cap, the, the number of these visas which are allowed for the United States on an annual basis. Um, it, at this point, the cap is now lower than it was during the Clinton administration. People are also discussing the possibility of global entry uh, for Indian citizens. And we could also take a look at ways of, of reducing processing delays, particularly for uh, highly skilled scientists, Indian science workers. This is something the National Academies of Science has been talking about for a long time.
I'll just touch on a couple other points and then I'll wrap up because I know we need to move on to our other speakers. Um, Prime Minister Modi's priority uh, that he's placing on infrastructure development uh, is really important. It's important for India, and this is an opportunity for the United States as well. Of course, the United States government doesn't direct investment, and this is a big difference between the way the U.S. works and the way other powers like Japan or China work in their engagements internationally. But American companies have a, a lot of technology to offer, advanced technology on traffic management or green buildings, smart cities, supply chain management, air traffic control, things like that. So because these are ultimately private contracts, there is an opportunity, but it will be a little bit different than the way India's engagement has worked with other countries. Uh, but certainly the United States could try to work to see if there are ways to promote, and I know people are interested in doing this, ways to promote opportunities that American companies could then compete for. Uh, I mentioned energy earlier, and the U.S. can certainly continue to do more on the clean energy front with India, continuing the joint pursuit of solutions for climate change. Here, this is also a space, uh, since India and the U.S. don't see eye to eye on the multilateral climate change issues, the clean energy component can actually help offset that, and that's a place where, where the U.S. and India can continue doing more. It's very positive. Um, so those are just a few areas I could go on at greater length, but I wanted to highlight some of uh, what I think are, are positive and successful ways to try to overcome some of the differences that we've faced in the last year or so. Uh, I'm sure more will come up in Q&A, but I know we've got other speakers to get to. Thanks. Thank you, Alyssa. That was a very uh, succinct presentation, and you highlighted quite a few things which I'm sure people would like to talk about, and then there will be the counterpart thing as well. I mean, for example, uh, you spoke about uh, the U.S., making it easier for Indians uh, on the visa side. How about the counterpart thing, which is uh, India making it easier for the Americans as well, as, as some people in this room probably know. It's not always as easy to get a visa for India. I uh, agree with uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now we come to one of the more complicated uh, relationships of India. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Bruce Rydell is going to discuss with us the India-U.S.-Pakistan triangle, uh, which is no longer that much of a triangle, according to some people, uh, but it still remains significant, uh, the impact of U.S. relationship with Pakistan on its relationship with India and uh, the Indian relationship uh, with the U.S. and its impact on Pakistan. And I would like you to discuss it, uh, Bruce, in the backdrop of Pakistan's uh, military intelligence establishment's continued use of what you have yourself described as terrorist brinkmanship. So to what extent is uh, terrorism an area of cooperation between the United States, I mean counterterrorism, an area of cooperation between Pakistan and uh, uh, between India and the United States? And to what extent is terrorism an issue that is an important issue for this relationship? And how does America's attitude and past relationship with Pakistan uh, impact uh, the relationship in general. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, uh, Hussain. I am going to focus on the U.S.-Indian counterterrorism and security relationship, uh, but before I focus on that in particular, I want to highlight something that the two previous speakers have also highlighted. The U.S.-Indian relationship today is transformed in ways that even a decade ago, and certainly two decades ago, no one would have thought we would be where we are today. For those who don't remember, we went 22 years between visits by American presidents in the last quarter of the 20th century. It would be unthinkable for any American president, frankly, for any American politician, not to find their way to India today. 
It has transformed in ways that are just remarkable to those of us who've watched it for a long time. But I want to focus on the terrorism issue, and let me spend my time looking at two incidents in particular, because I think they raise very profound questions about the future of terrorism and the risk and the threat from terrorism in South Asia today, and then speak about what the U.S. and India might be able to do about them. And of course, they both involve Pakistan. The first incident took place at the end of May. There was an attack by a heavily armed squad of terrorists on the Indian consulate in Herat, Afghanistan. The terrorists were able to penetrate inside the outer perimeter of the, of the consulate, but then fortunately they were all killed by the Indian consulate security guards from the Indo-Tibet uh, border security organization. From information and equipment found on their persons, it is easy to say in retrospect what the intention of these terrorists were. They planned to penetrate into the consulate and take Indian diplomats prisoner and then hold them hostage and probably kill them over the course of the next 72 hours in the buildup to the inauguration of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Now we know what happened in the real world in which they were killed. Imagine in the alternative world if on the eve of the inauguration of a new Prime Minister, Indian diplomats were being systematically murdered by a bunch of terrorists in Afghanistan. It would have changed the entire dynamic of the situation. It would certainly have provoked a very interesting conflict between India and Pakistan at the eve of this important event. The United States State Department, a week or so after the attack, came out with another blockbuster. The terrorists involved in the attack were members of Lashkar-e-Taiba, the terrorist organization based in Pakistan that carried out, of course, the attack on Mumbai in November 2008, known as 2611. We don't exactly know why the State Department decided to inform the rest of the world that Lashkar-e-Taiba was involved. We can speculate on that. It's a very interesting thing. The State Department doesn't often offer such detailed information about events, terrorist events overseas, but I think there's every reason to believe it was true. If indeed, and I think it's safe to say Lashkar-e-Taiba was involved in this attack, that it planned to carry out something like this on the eve of the inauguration of the Prime Minister, it raises profound questions about who in the Pakistani military and security establishment was in on the plot as well. We know from previous incidents like Mumbai 2008 that Lashkar-e-Taiba works hand in glove with the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI. There is every reason to believe that an attack in Herat, Afghanistan at a critical juncture like this would have had the foreknowledge of at least the Pakistani intelligence services. And as I've argued in a number of books, that means the foreknowledge of the Pakistani high command in the army. What were their purposes? What did they have in mind? What did they think this was going to accomplish? Equally important, did they plan to do this in order to embarrass their own Prime Minister, Nawaz Sharif, who of course was invited to go to the inauguration of the Indian Prime Minister? That would be very much reminiscent of November 2008, in which one of the main purposes of the attack on Mumbai was to, criti to critically injure the political position of then-Pakistani leader, um, Zadari, the whole point here is that this incident raises profound questions about who in Pakistan was intending to carry out one of the most grievous acts of international terrorism just a few months ago. Let me bring forward to the second incident, which happened earlier this month. Just after Al-Qaeda leader Ayman Zawahiri announced that a new Al-Qaeda franchise had been created up, or Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, Believe me, in Arabic, it sounds much more, 
is much prettier in Arabic than Al-Qaeda in the Islamic subcontinent. It's, it's just the English translation doesn't do its service. Just after that announcement, there was an attack by this group on the Pakistani naval base in Karachi. We now know a few details about the attack, although there is much that remains unclear. The purpose of the attack, according to Al-Qaeda, was to hijack a Pakistani frigate, a Chinese-built frigate, the PNS Zulfikar, armed with cruise missiles capable of being fired several hundred kilometers against other ships at sea. The intention of Al-Qaeda was to hijack this vessel, take it out into the Indian Ocean, and then move up close to an American naval vessel and open fire. That may be a fanciful and hard-to-accomplish mission, but that is certainly a very elaborate plot and one which would have had profound implications. We also know that this was an inside job, that the terrorists who were trying to hijack the vessel were, in fact, members of the Pakistani Navy. They were able to get onto the naval vessel because they had all the appropriate protocols and badges that allowed them in. This, too, raises some very important questions. How deeply is the Pakistani military penetrated by al-Qaeda and other groups? What is the intention of al-Qaeda vis-a-vis these penetrations towards Pakistan's nuclear weapons arsenal? What is al-Qaeda's intention of dealing with India in the future, and how significant could it use penetrations of the Pakistani military to carry out such attacks? All of these are profound and important questions for American and Indian counterterrorism and security officials to think about. These two incidents taking place in the less than six months have to leave us with the judgment that we're going to see more such incidents in the future. Lashkar-e-Taiba has paid no price for what it did in Herat last May. In fact, the head of Lashkar-e-Taiba appears on television more than probably all of the people on this panel collectively <laughs> appear on television. Um, despite the fact that there is a bounty looking for his information to his arrest, the man doesn't appear to be in any sense of danger. Another thing I would say, Prime Minister Modi, his very persona, his past, the histories about him, perceptions for and against him attract Islamic extremist thinking. Modi, as an extremely successful Indian politician, known to be a strong nationalist, known to be a strong believer in the BJP ideology, is going to attract the attention of extremists from Islamic movements like Lashkar-e-Taiba, like Al-Qaeda. That's not to meant to blame Prime Minister Modi in any way. It's inevitable in who he is that enemies of that are going to try to take him down. What can the U.S. and India do about this together? Well, here again, the good news, as my, my two previous speakers laid out, is a lot has been done. Intelligence cooperation, security cooperation between the United States and India has been transformed in the last six years. If you look at what we did normally before November 2008 and what we do normally today, it's a sea change in activity. Just to give you one example, the very first place that President Obama's first director of central intelligence, Leon Panetta, went on a foreign trip was India. That was done deliberately, and it was went as a signal not only to India, but also as a signal to the ISI. How many times directors of central intelligence foreign travel are previewed to the press is pretty rare, the very fact of doing that. Nonetheless, it's my judgment that much more still can be done. 
There's much more that we need to look into some intelligence sharing of information, intelligence cooperation, and specifically about the most immediate threats that we both face, which are all based in Pakistan, and how we intend to try to deal with those threats and the unique challenge posed by the ISI relationship with groups like Lashkari Taiba. There's also a challenge ahead in Afghanistan. As U.S. and NATO forces draw down increasingly in Afghanistan, perhaps to zero by the beginning of 2017, which I think would be a, a grave mistake, but that is the course we're on today, we, the United States and India, need to think about how we're going to help to try to fill the security vacuum that is inevitably going to come from the withdrawal of NATO and American forces out of there. Finally, I think there's also work that should be done in the realm of crisis management planning. Another crisis between India and Pakistan is inevitable, in my judgment. If you look at the track record of the last quarter of a century, we average one every five years or so. Let's not plan on how we're going to manage that crisis when the crisis begins. Let's start thinking about how to manage a crisis like that well in advance. Uh, that was very cheerful. <laughs> um, that I, wasn't in, you didn't send me a memo saying cheerful. No, no, no. We wanted, we wanted accuracy. We want, we want truthfulness and accuracy for, for the integrity of analysis. I think uh, reversing the order a little bit with, with Sadhanan's permission, since we've just discussed Pakistan in part, uh, shall we go to China first? So uh, Tanvi, uh, Tanvi Madan is going to discuss the China factor in the India-U.S. relationship. Uh, there are people who see India as a counterweight to China, those who are convinced that China is a rising power and will be a strategic threat to the United States global leadership at some point. Um, so let's discuss that, especially in the context that President Xi was recently in India and now Prime Minister Modi is in the United States. And please try and stick to 10, 12 minutes. There's yes. a clock right across. Uh, thank you, Sen, and I will try very hard to, to stay in my uh, time. What I'm going to do is talk a little broadly about how China plays into kind of the India-U.S. relationship and then specifically look at the question that Hussein just posed about the, uh, President Xi Jinping's visit and what that might mean for the visit moving forward uh, just on this weekend, but also beyond it over the next few months and years. Um, I mean, firstly, I'd just like to kind of broadly say that India-U.S. relations are partly driven by and shaped by the two countries' perceptions of uh, the other's relationships and their own relationships with China. Um, in some ways, there's a bit of a Goldilocks principle at work on both sides. Uh, neither India nor the U.S. want to see the other's relations with China be either too hot or too cold. Uh, on the U.S. side, I mean, you see this with uh, the U.S. has an interest in a stable China-India relationship, especially given the other tensions in Asia and the world broadly, including in the Middle East and Europe. Uh, moreover, you won't necessarily, you know, the U.S. won't necessarily mind if Chinese investment in India leads to a better Indian economy uh, and better infrastructure that can be uh, be a benefit to American companies uh, and bu business broadly as well. Uh, on the other hand, the U.S. has no interest in seeing India get too close um, uh, to China. Uh, it wouldn't like to see China dominate the Indian economy and Chinese companies uh, uh, be major competitors to American companies. Um, and it wouldn't really like to see China and India form a tag team, whether with Russia or in various multilateral forums. And you see this play out, this kind of Goldilocks principle play out on the Indian side as well. Um, uh, you hear often Indian concerns about a G2, uh, about uh, the China and India, uh, sorry, China and the U.S., 
behaving in a very uh, close collaborative fashion uh, and the idea being that this would be done in a way that not just left India out, but they would act in a fashion that would be to India's detriment. Um, and you kind of see a different manifestation of this uh, when you see, uh, you know, you, you hear concerns about, well, is the U.S. Uh, really a reliable partner in terms of sending China a message? Uh, when push comes to serve, in, the U.S. will always choose its relationship uh, with China because that's a more economically interdependent one. Uh, and it's all very well in words, but in actions, uh, the U.S. won't be reliable. And you do hear this. I mean, on the other hand, you also don't want to see you – you see Indian officials say uh, – and behave in a matter that, manner that says we don't want to see uh, China-U.S. Uh, tensions get too bad because it potentially causes instability in, in the entire region, which negatively could potentially impact Indian, the achievement of India's domestic goals. Um, so you see this at play, and I think there is another dimension about why neither the, the, the U.S. nor India would like to see uh, tension between the other and, and China. And that's because uh, that would mean that they might, have that, might be asked to choose between the two, which neither one wants to do. India doesn't want to be asked to choose between China and the U.S., uh, and the reverse as well. There's another dimension at play here as well, where kind of China feeds into the broader U.S.-India relationship. Uh, and that is, in some ways, there is, a, there, there is a realization on both sides that China, in a, not in a necessarily an active way, uh, but as a factor, uh, drives interest in the U.S. and India and in India in the U.S. and, in, and creates importance for the other country. Um, so for the Indian uh, leadership, I mean, they recognize that uh, American concerns in various constituencies about either the rise of China and the way that's happening, questions about Chinese intentions in some cases – and even questions and concerns about the nature of the Chinese government actually create constituencies for India and the U.S., and they find this useful. Um, on, on, on the other hand, you see how for India, uh, their concerns about uh, China's rise, whether it's going to be peaceful or not, uh, questions about Chinese intention actually creates uh, importance or, or uh, generates a certain sense of importance for the U.S. in India. Uh, again, creates constituencies in a few different ways. I mean, one is this idea that the U.S. is one of the few countries that can really help shape China's rise in a way uh, that India would like to see. India does not like the idea that some have argued the, the, the Xi vision of Asia, as with the U.S. playing less of a role and China dominant. Uh, that is not a view of a uh, vision of Asia uh, that, that Prime Minister Modi shares, and he's made that quite clear. Um, Another way, so it's kind of kind of the offshore balancer or the or pivotal role of the U.S. in Asia, which you have increasingly heard Indian officials publicly talk about, saying we want a stronger U.S. role in the Asia-Pacific. There's a, a couple of other ways that a good relationship with the U.S. is seen to redound to the benefit of India's relations with a few con other countries in, in the Asia-Pacific, including China. Uh, it sends a signal. And there's another kind of useful way that Indian officials will say – that good, US, uh, good relations with the U.S., the U.S. giving India importance, actually means has benefited India's relations with Japan uh, and, and countries like Australia as well. So the fact that you know, China is this element actually uh, facilitates that relationship. I think you do see um, there, there is a third aspect to this question as well, which is that they are, the three countries do share uh, some interest. I mean, China and India and the U.S. don't I – mean, the, the triangle, because it's so complex, one of the areas – Afghanistan is an area, for example, 
where all three countries see stability uh, as being in their interests. The Middle East is another area. Now, the, the difficulties come in how you actually get to that stability. And in, in the case of Afghanistan, the, uh, the kind of, this is where the Pakistan dimension comes in, is how that link plays out. What does what is China, how does it see and what is it willing to do to ensure a certain uh, role that Pakistan plays vis-a-vis Afghanistan? Um, but there are these areas that the three countries could act together. Uh, energy security is another one. And we'll wait and see. Um, not sure it's in this context that we'll see much movement on this, but potentially in the future if the three countries act together. On Xi's visit, uh, President Xi Jinping was in India uh, uh, over the last, uh, or actually last week. Um, the visit was... Uh, uh, followed a fairly su- what many saw as a fairly successful Modi visit to uh, to Japan. Uh, what got overshadowed was uh, what many considered a fairly successful visit by the Indian president to Vietnam. And I would encourage everybody to actually go and look at that uh, what happened there because that is a very significant uh, country in terms of how um, Mr. Modi seems to be seeing uh, Asia, the Asia Pacific. But the Xi visit, I mean, I think many of you have probably heard uh, uh, kind of the postmortems of the visit, and I think we'll be hearing about that for a while. Let me just highlight kind of positive and negative elements. I think there was a positive element, though it's getting lost in the various kind of uh, postmortems, and that's on the economic side. Uh, the $20 billion of commitment that was, uh, that was promised uh, because of the expectation set maybe doesn't look that big. But if you consider the current level of Chinese investment in India, which is about less than $500 million, that's a significant jump. Um, you did see also some amount of uh, 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 the Chinese the leadership kind of trying to convey that they take India more seriously. But that is also that was kind of offset and in some, in some ways overshadowed by a couple of things. One was the expectation setting, which was a bit surprising that the Chinese officials did this, which was the expectation setting on the economic side. Um, Usually the protocol is not to declare outcomes before uh, actual visits. In this case, you had Chinese officials both in Delhi and Bombay uh, actually uh, previewing $100 billion plus of commitments that could potentially uh, uh, be made. Not going to get into the details of why they might not have been made and why this happened, but what that did is set expectations, especially when these officials also explicitly compared uh, that commitment to uh, the Japanese commitment of $35 billion over seven years, saying, look, we're actually going to beat that. Um, so that created expectations. So the $20 billion, which would otherwise have been considered a pretty good deliverable, was some looked kind of, uh, it paled in comparison. Uh, the other thing was, and significantly, the, the incident at the border that is still ongoing. Um, and it is one thing that th- this happened last year in April, just before Premier Li Keqiang uh, visited India. Uh, and there was another border incident this time. I think we're still trying to figure out what exactly happened, why this border incident took place. And I think we won't see, we'll see that, that question play out for a while. What did happen is that, that it did overshadow the visit. Uh, you saw on every split screen on every Indian news channel the visit on the one hand uh, with all the ceremony and the border incident playing out uh, on the other. I think you also saw uh, this reinforce the many questions in India amongst the elite and public about Chinese intentions uh, over the long term, whether it takes uh, uh, India seriously, and also whether this was a way of trying to bully the new government and send a certain signal. Um, I, I think there's also an argument to be made uh, that this was a uh, this was a lost opportunity for Premier uh, for President Xi with Prime Minister Modi 
who I can't imagine expected to issue the statement that he ended up issuing uh, on the visit, which was heavily focused on sensitivities rather than talking about economic opportunity and talking about the border incident much more than I suspect they would have otherwise uh, liked to. And I think for some, if this is going to be an era of very personal diplomacy, I think the the Chinese leadership has lost a chance. In many ways, if, there were, if this was coming from a tactical perspective, it's a strategic loss, I think, in many ways. Uh, it might be a strategic loss for China. I, I, I think this could be an opportunity for India-U.S. relations, and not in a very active sense. I don't think this should be about choices or playing one-off against each other, but it does create a certain opportunity. Um, for India, there's always been, and I'll, I'm going to wrap up in a couple of minutes, Hussein, just in case I'm running over time. Um, this creates an opportunity for uh, actually thinking about, on the strategic side, where Mr. Modi wants to take the relationship with the U.S. Uh, in some ways, there have all, there's always been this sense in the Indian government from uh, the late 40s through now of whether preparation, including building partnerships in Asia, will be seen as provocation uh, in China. We have seen, and that might still exist, that you can see some arguing that uh, maybe President Xi and others were concerned about uh, Mr. Modi's outreach to Japan, etc. This was a way of saying that, listen, we have, uh, we have uh, certain ideas about this too. Having said that, we have seen the Modi government not be afraid to send signals, including with uh, inviting t- Tibetan leadership to uh, the government swearing in. We have seen uh, a fairly strong statement from the foreign minister saying that China needed to have a one India policy, just like India has a one China policy. Uh, we've seen, uh, and I would encourage you to read uh, the joint declaration, India-Vietnam declaration, when Pranab Mukherjee, the president, went to Vietnam, which almost for the first time mentions the South China Sea and the East China Sea very explicitly and talks about freedom of navigation. Uh, and you saw the, the statement from the prime minister as well. So they're not afraid to send signals. And so this might not stop. Another signal could be potentially reaching out uh, to the U.S. and not letting, so in three ways, kind of trying to leverage the relationship with the U.S. to send a signal to China. And I, th- this could happen in three ways. Uh, one is psychological. To actually say a good visit, we're not going to let China hold us back from having a closer relationship uh, with the U.S. Uh, this is not business as usual. Second is geopolitical, to kind of play the balancing game and uh, have uh, good relations with not just the U.S., but U.S. allies and partners. The third is kind of in a more physical infrastructure sense. The U.S. can, India could look to the U.S. to help uh, with its uh, infrastructure development in near the border areas, as well as in its military modernization. Um, so what, what does this mean for the U.S.? I think there's a real opportunity, especially with this visit. There will be contrasts. And I think so for the, the opportunity for the U.S., and I think many recognize this, many acknowledge this, to have this visit not just be about kind of substance, but optics as well, to show that in some ways, implicitly, uh, India's rise is something the U.S. supports, that unlike China, this is something that the U.S. recognizes, and as Alyssa pointed out, that there is strategic consensus on this. Uh, I think the U.S. can also facilitate India's relationships with its allies and partners uh, in the Asia-Pacific. I don't think it should play a very active role, It should because this will not be welcome necessarily, but I think where it can, uh, when it comes, uh, comes to these questions, that it should facilitate, including a larger role in some of the Asian regional organizations. 
Uh, I think the, fi the final thing is to make clear, uh, both rhetorically and in action, not just where the administration's Asia policy lies, but India's role in it. Uh, there will be questions in India uh, about reliability. Indians will watch uh, President Obama's trip to China very carefully. But overall, I think this is an opportunity uh, to, to improve uh, at least discussions on that end. Thank you. And now, finally, Sadhanand Dume, you have been actually writing about what you see as Prime Minister Modi's foreign policy goals, the potential for economic cooperation in particular. Um, and I would like you to address all those things and summarize them in 10 articulate minutes. Well, thank you very much, Hussain, for having me here. And I have to congratulate you on your smart move of inviting my wife, too, to ensure that I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> and so I'm going to do my best to uh, stick to the time limit, and um, hopefully then we can get to Q&A. Um, I'm going to make three very broad points about, uh, about the visit uh, from, a, from, from the economic perspective. The first is that economics is absolutely central to the success of this visit for the simple reason that economics was central to Narendra Modi's appeal as a candidate and the fact that he's, been, he's prime minister today. The second point is that though it is still early days, we've basically, the, the government has been in office for only about four months, uh, so far on economics, the Modi government has sent out mixed messages. There's a glass half full aspect, but there's also a glass half empty aspect. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. And the third point I'm going to make is that Modi's window to get the economics right is actually quite small. And I'm going to talk about why that is the case, particularly in comparison with his predecessor, Manmohan Singh. First point, why is economics central to this visit? Uh, for the simple reason that it is central to Modi's own appeal as a candidate first and now as a prime minister. Just before the election, I was traveling in Uttar Pradesh and I went to Varanasi, where Modi himself was standing for parliament. And one of the things that I was struck by in my conversations with people over there was the sense of optimism about him. Just if you were sort of from a distance just reading the opinion pages of the, of, uh, the Indian opinion pages, the sense you got was there's this really contentious debate going on but when you went there, and particularly in UP, which of course voted overwhelmingly for the BJP, there was such a sense of hope. And I wrote a piece which was headlined in the Wall Street Journal, Indians Vote for Hope. And that really was what this election was about, in my view. And if you look at polls, you see that it's supported by the fact that overwhelmingly people were concerned about jobs and inflation. Economic issues were central to this. There was a very complex debate about the Gujarat model that went on in the pages of the domestic and international press. But on the ground, clearly Modi won that debate. His idea that his rule in Gujarat resulted in 24 hours electricity, good roads, jobs, is exactly what won in the public imagination and helped him to get elected with this overwhelming majority by Indian standards, at least, and end the coalition era. Indeed, if we were to go back just five years, uh, there were leading people who were leading commentators close to the BJP who were wondering whether the BJP would ever come back to power again. This was not a party that was on the ascendant. This was a party that was in decline, having lost two successive elections without a clear leadership, without a clear, with, with its philosophical moorings in question. And here you had this person who campaigned on the back of his economic performance and turned it around and became prime minister. 
So the economics is really important for him to get right in Washington. My second point is that so far the messages that Modi has sent out, particularly to the international community on on where he stands on economics, I, I would say it's a mixed bag. On the positive side, you've seen a slight uptick in growth. It's now at its fastest pace in two years. It's almost touching almost 6% in terms of quarterly growth. You have seen some capacity for bold action. For example, in his Independence Day speech, Modi announced that he was scrapping the planning commission, a relic of Nehruvian socialism. He has allowed the the government to shut down a loss-making watch manufacturer, HMT watches. And so there is a sense there that this is a person who would be willing to do things that are certainly bolder than his predecessor. At the same time, you see that clearances have been speeded up considerably. There's a sense, new sense of purpose in the bureaucracy. There is uh, the stock market is booming. Businessmen, if you speak with them, have rarely been so optimistic about India. There's a real kind of bullishness that this that India now has a leader with a can-do attitude, and that can-do attitude is going to translate into a much better business climate and get India moving again. On the glass half empty side, uh, the most obvious thing is that we have not yet seen major reforms. Now, I personally personally hold the view that it's way too early to judge. I don't think any Indian government has been judged within the first four months. So it's too early to come to any kind of sort of definitive conclusion. But the fact is that there was a view put out during the election campaign, and I was one of the people putting that out, which essentially viewed Modi's silence or ambivalence on some issues of economic reform as realpolitik. Well, of course, Modi is not going to say anything against the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, because how could he say that and hope to be elected? Of course, he's not going to oppose the food security bill, which provides food subsidized grains to two-thirds of the population, because that would be daft. Of course, he's not going to run on on a campaign of privatization, Because, come on, this is India. This is not Thatcher's Britain. But there was a sense that behind all of this, the kind of people he had surrounded himself with, if you looked at his his advisors and if you looked at his supporters, that in fact Modi would have an economic program that was, for want of a better term, considerably to the right of what his campaign rhetoric suggested. Four months in, it has to be said that those expectations have not been met, and perhaps you can make the case that those who put out that view were being overly optimistic. There is no move to reform labor laws, at least at the central level. Modi, in fact, has spoken against privatization, most recently to Fareed Zakaria, where he said that, well, I could just get these state-owned companies to work better as I did in Gujarat. And the budget was quite a damp squib. Even on the one issue that I would argue there is broad consensus on was the most disastrous policy put in place by the Indian government ever since economic reforms in 1991, which is the so-called retroactive taxes they put in place in in, in, in 2012. Uh, The Modi government has not repealed the retroactive taxes. It has simply suggested that it doesn't like them very much. Similarly, Modi's two key slogans during his campaign, which raised a lot of hopes. One was maximum governance, minimum government. And the second was that the, that the government has no business being in business. 
if these two slogans were to be translated into policy terms, I think you would see major reform. We haven't seen that yet. Now, why is this important? I think it's particularly important. I mean, so if you put this argument forward, uh, people from the other side push back and say, well, you know, this is like a cricket match, and there are plenty of Indians in the audience, so I'll use a cricket, cricket analogy. This is like a cricket match. It's a five-day test match. He's been elected for five years. Don't treat it like a T20, a three-hour match. Don't judge him too quickly. And to be fair, there's some merit in that argument. It's true that he's been elected for five years, and he's not going to sort of, you can't judge him that, that quickly. But there is also a context, and the context is that Modi has been elected at a very difficult time for India. I'm not sure if some of you saw the most recent uh, World Economic Forum's global competitive rankings, where India essentially fell 11 places to number 71 in the world. It's right now the last among the BRICS economies. So Modi has not inherited an economic situation which was comparable to the economic situation inherited by Manmohan Singh, who had a healthy government balance sheet, growth on the uptake, investors already interested. He has inherited a situation where the past few years, particularly for the period from 2011 onwards, has raised questions about the political will of India's leadership and what this means for India's economy. So that's the first part. Uh, the second is that... <laughs> I think that in, as a result of this, I think that India, at least among foreign companies, gets less benefit of doubt now than it did earlier. Um, I've often criticized this idea of Davos man, where you know you have this one argument that is being put forth by politicians in Hindi on the stump, which is, what more can I give you a free TV and can I give you a free, can I give you a free fridge and can I give you a free boiler and what what have you, and then you have this other argument being put for put forward very articulately. Um, you know, by someone in a suit and tie in Davos, which is that, you know, this is all about economic reform and we're going ahead. But the last 10 years of Congress rule showed that that is not sustainable. You have to pay attention to what the politician says to his own people in his own language. And that is only right. That's how it should be in a democracy. But it does mean that the patience for this kind of mixed messaging, where one message is being, said, being put out domestically and another one internationally, has worn thin and Modi is not going to be a beneficiary of that. So he's going to have to show concrete results much sooner than his predecessor. The third and final point before I wrap up is that though Modi himself has a positive image in terms of among businessmen and among economists for his rather good job of handling the, the Gujarat economy, he is, he is not going to enjoy the kind of honeymoon that Manmohan Singh did for the simple reason that Manmohan Singh was viewed as the architect of liberalization. When, in 1991, when Manmo, when, when, in 2004, when Manmohan Singh became prime minister, that was the headline everywhere. And it took a long, long time. I would argue it took about seven or eight years before people figured out that Manmohan Singh, the prime minister, and Manmohan Singh, the finance minister, were very different beasts. And the reason they were very different beasts was that Manmohan Singh, the finance minister, had a prime minister who was above him, committed to reform, Whereas Manmohan Singh, the prime minister, had a leader in Tenjanpath who was maybe quite not, not quite as committed to reform. <laughs> so to sum up what I'm getting at over here is that the economics is central to, to, to Modi. He has done things, and there is reason to believe that this is a person who can get it done. Certainly in the Indian political spectrum, he represents the best hope of a turnaround. 
But I think the analogy that this is a test match and that therefore the judgment will be that, that, that he should be judged slowly, while it has some merit, actually is not based on reality because people outside, particularly in corporations, are more impatient today with India than they were a few years ago. Thank you. Great. We have had five excellent, excellent presentations, a lot of food for thought for everyone. Uh, I am happy to open this for questions and answers. Before we go, just a short comment uh, based on what uh, Sadhanan just said. I mean, uh, on the American side, one can argue that what the American and Indian encounter is in some ways an encounter between a civilization known for its patience and a culture not necessarily known for uh, much patience. Uh, so Americans would definitely want results much sooner on all things when they get serious about it. Of course, what Bruce said was there are certain issues on which perhaps the Americans have uh, spent too much time uh, not taking swift enough action, uh, the terrorism side. So these are all questions that uh, are come out of this conversation. Please raise your hand, state your institutional affiliation, uh, and uh, ask a question. Uh, I will first take questions, and then if we still have time, I will let you guys make comments. But <laughs> the difference between a question and a comment is usually known to people. But in Washington, D.C., I've discovered that there is a lack of understanding. So a question normally ends with a question mark, and it actually is something uh, interrogative, uh, rather than just a long spiel about how you feel on the subject, for which you are more than welcome to send us an email. And if you fit our criteria, we'll have you on a panel someday. So questions, please. Yes, sir, in the middle. I'm Mac Gessler from the Maryland School of Public Policy. Uh, noting that almost nothing has been said about trade policy in this panel, does um, our Minister Modi have any strong declared position intentions in this area? Trade policy. Sadhanan. I think what's dominated the discussion on trade policy, frankly, has been uh, India's stand at the WTO on the Trade Facilitation Agreement. Now, Modi has spoken about the importance of trade. He has spoken about how he, he has sort of harked back to medieval Indian rulers who, who cared about trade, particularly maritime trade. He governed Gujarat, which is arguably India's most outward-looking and trade-friendly state. But it's not clear that this makes him a, trade, a free trader. Uh, clearly, trade is going to be important to his idea of economic policy, but if we were to go by the TFA uh, agreement, or the lack of one, rather, uh, I think he's going to remain particularly sensitive to domestic constituencies. And so, in a sense, uh, what, what, putting that together with his idea of make in India, uh, it seems like trade is important, but he wants to build a manufacturing base and wants to sort of pursue... Indian manufacturing strength and not simply open up trade uh, across the board. Um, How is that different from China, for example? Well, I think, you know... When I mean, they I, started out. I, 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 I think in many cases, you know, the, the, the Chinese-driven uh, economy uh, was very trade-driven. And I think, you know, but we do see the difference. Um, 
in terms of, I mean, India's, and of course China's now, and other countries, including Japan, have tried to encourage domestic markets. For the longest time, the argument was India had a big enough domestic market. So what was made in India? I mean, the one issue that you, ha you, you know, you underlying the make in India is you want to make it in, make in India on the positive side, but you don't want to get to the stage where there's some danger of the going and in, slipping into import substitution uh, language, which, you know, when you're hearing the Independence Day speech, you could interpret it that way. So I think, you know, it is different. Uh, having said that, you know, and, and, and in some ways, uh, Prime Minister Modi has talked with great admiration of Chinese economic achievement, uh, but he's also made it very clear that India is different. Uh, and this was most rec recently, of course, articulated explicitly in uh, his interview with uh, Fareed Zakaria this cool. weekend. But even when he went to China uh, and, and returned, um, uh, when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat, he made that quite clear that because right. of exactly the domestic constituencies that... Yes, Ambassador Kapoor wants to say Sorry. something. Sorry. Uh, Professor Desla, I would just like to discuss it uh, from another paradigm. Uh, there is trade policy and there is trade. Now, Modi's focus is not going to be to get involved with the difficult issues of trade policy globally. But he has already sent out very clear signals that he is very focused on the aspects of uh, trade. Uh, he will be meeting a large number of important CEOs while he is here in the US. He is called in uh, CEOs of various organizations for meetings, including the uh, chairman uh, of uh, BlackRock, for example, the IBM, the General Electric, Goldman and Sachs, Google, what? PepsiCo, uh, Carlyle Group, Cargill, Citigroup, Merck, Caterpillar, Ein, across Kapoor, the broad range. I, I, yeah. think, I think we understand what you're saying, but I think uh, Professor Chester's and question was very specific <laughs> about trade policy, so we should keep the question more focused. Well, uh, with and such an yeah. important market in the sense that India would be one of the global drivers of the uh, you know global economy, and we have a very young population. Uh, he's going to be more focused on that. There is a lot of hiatus in our trade policy organization in India due to whatever has been inherited by the Modi government. We have heard discussions from uh, Sadanand, for example, about the budget. Now, I was reading a very interesting article about how the budget uh, formulation was made with Arun Jetli, the Minister of Finance, giving clear-cut instructions to all his bureaucrats, including the secretaries of the Ministry of Finance, that he wanted a very uh, dynamic budget, a very robust budget, a very different budget. And how it started off with those instructions and those directions, and how with all the arguments which were put forth by all these secretaries and these joint secretaries in the Ministry of Finance, it became a budget which was uh, very different from what was originally right. thought about. Alyssa, you so, wanted to yeah, say something? I, I did want to address that I actually spoke at, at great length in my presentation. I think that the trade issues uh, are at the center of uh, many of the most contentious bilateral disagreements between India and the United States. Uh, it, it is certainly the case that the Indian economy is much more open now than it was in 1991, uh, but it is not fully open. There are still some sectors that have caps put on foreign direct investment. Uh, many of these are issues uh, between India and the United States, or rather uh, India and many countries, but there are certainly issues that American officials raise uh, and are issues about which American businesses have concerns. Um, one of the things that the Indian government is focused on doing, as Thanvi just said, is developing a manufacturing sector. Uh, India needs to create jobs for its, its demography, creating between 10 and 12 million jobs per year for people rising of workforce age. And the previous government, and this is certainly to continue uh, forward with the new government, 
uh, would like to do that through uh, growing its manufacturing sector, which currently does not uh, have the capacity to do that at the moment. Instead of creating programs that would be designed to build a manufacturing sector through an incentive-based program, uh, the previous government, and we don't yet know what the Modi government will do on this count, but the previous government focused on uh, local content requirements to try to uh, compel foreign companies to produce a fixed percentage of whatever their goods were in India, uh, instead of saying, hey, we'll give you an incentive if you come and uh, operate and build a, a factory in our state, then you can have this incentive package, the way many countries around the world work. So these are also an issue. When you uh, apply local content requirements, that actually creates a barrier to imports from around the world. So that's, that's an issue that people discuss. The multilateral trade issues are actually quite contentious. Uh, we've got three disputes underway in the WTO right now with India. I don't know where those stand at the moment. I think they've moved into panel. Uh, but, but these are, are very significant differences. Of course, you always have more trade differences when you trade more with countries. We've got a lot of differences with Canada, for example. Uh, but that's one of the reasons that it will be really important for the U.S. and India to have deeper and more detailed conversations about those differences and try to find ways to bridge them. Okay. Next question. Yes, please, in the middle, Seema Sirohi. Hi. Uh, my question is uh, for Bruce Rydell. Uh, you painted a picture that's quite chilling as to the penetration of um, the Pakistani armed forces by the jihadi elements. So the logical question would be, what would it take for U.S. policy to actually change towards Pakistan, the way it transformed towards India? I mean, what are we waiting for? I raised questions about the extent of penetration. We don't actually know how dangerous the situation is. We do know that the uh, uh, Pakistani Navy in particular seems to have a track record of uh, penetration by al-Qaeda and like-minded groups. Um, what will change American policy towards Pakistan could be the subject of a, a two-hour conference and we would barely begin to cover it. We will arrange that someday, Bruce. <laughs> so <laughs> let's, just, let's just remain focused on, on Prime Minister Modi and, and, and the U.S. and what could right. be discussed during this con visit. In, in that context, I think the immediate issue is going to be Afghanistan. Um, when the United States was dependent upon Pakistan for supplying 100,000 American troops in Afghanistan, uh, there was certain <coughs> limitations and constraints on U.S. policy. Those constraints are going to be gone. And to a large extent, they already are gone, but they are, they are steadily going to change. Secondly, with a new Afghan government, there's an opportunity for U.S.-India collaboration in support of that government, which I think is, is a major opening here. How we then collectively deal with the Pakistan challenge uh, is one that I think Modi and uh, President Obama should explore a great deal over the course of the next several weeks. Let me be clear about one thing. I'm not advocating ganging up on Pakistan. I don't think that would work. I think that would feed into the worst paranoid conspiracy Absolutely. theories. What I am talking about is having a serious conversation between two countries about the problems posed in a third country and how you, how you think you're going to adapt to them and deal with them over the course of time. Good. Next question. Yes, young lady at the back. This is kind of a long question, so bear with me. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. So 
Many U.S. businesses have voiced concerns in the past few years about the business Could environment. Could you speak a little louder? We oh, can't sorry. hear you. Many U.S. businesses have vo voiced concerns in the past few years about the business environment in India, in particular with respect to India's policies on intellectual property and forced localization. Many hope the Modi government will be more open and business-focused than the previous government, but India's actions blocking the trade facilitation agreement at the WTO suggested those hopes may be misplaced. Do you think the new government has the interest and ability to tackle difficult issues like respect for intellectual property and forced localization? Would you like to introduce yourself as well? Oh, I'm Gata. I'm uh, working with Aiken Gump. Okay. You want to have a quick shot at that? Um, I think. Uh, uh, already answered it yeah, partly, I think this has already been answered in parts, but I'll just sort of, you know, quickly say that uh, I don't think that IPR issues are going to be resolved entirely to the satisfaction of the U.S. And I think it's important that some of these very narrow sectoral concerns, though sometimes they do have merit that these narrow sectoral concerns don't hijack the larger relationship. Uh, there is more to not just the U.S.-India relationship, but there's more to the U.S.-India economic relationship than a uh, sort of very narrow concern that often is being driven not, on, not, not even by an industry, but by maybe one or two firms within an industry. Uh, jury is still out on uh, preferential market access. I would hope that the Modi government makes India a more attractive place to manufacture by making it easier to acquire land, by easing some labor law restrictions, and so on. We're beginning to see signs of some reform in the state, such as in Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, which is being encouraged by, by New Delhi, and certainly seems that cutting down red tape is going to be a part of it. So I think the emphasis is probably going to be more on making India a better place to manufacture, as it should be, uh, but it's not entirely clear to me whether this government is going to give up uh, the blunt instrument of preferential market access. Next. Yes, sir. Um, my name is Shane Mason from the Simpson Center, and I have a question for uh, Mr. Rydell. Um, in the events of another crisis between India and Pakistan that's precipitated by a terrorist attack in India emanating or having links with Pakistan, um, what options do you think India has to either uh, respond uh, to this or to deter future attacks? And what role do you think the United States will play um, in future crises uh, between India and Pakistan? Uh, let me flip that, take the second part. Uh, the United States has played in a critical part in dealing with these kind of crises now going back to 1990. Uh, there are even those who argue that we have a playbook uh, that uh, can just be pulled off the shelves uh, that tells us what to do. Um, in my experience in government, and I'll ask Alicia if she has the same one, uh, usually you can't find the playbook. <laughs> you know, it's in the, uh, it went to the Little Rock Presidential Library, and they can't, you know, they don't work on weekends. Uh, but we have a lot of experience at it. But going to the first part of the question, I think time is, if not run out, pretty close. It's very hard for me to imagine how any Indian government confronted with another terrorist attack of the magnitude of uh, Mumbai 2611, or had that attack in Herat been successful, will be able to simply stand back and say, well, we're going to turn the other cheek, or we're going to look for uh, international isolation. Um, I think the time on that has probably run out. Now, I'm sure 
that inside the Defense Ministry and uh, the Intelligence Bureau and Research and Analysis Wing, there are people working round the clock trying to come up with options. Um, and I suspect they have already begun to put forward uh, a menu of options, which could go from something as relatively benign as a quarantine of Pakistani ports. Well, we did that once uh, in a crisis, uh, to some kind of limited military action. But all of those raise the same questions that have been raised in every Indo-Pakistani crisis since 1990 which is once you start the escalatory ladder, how do you prevent it from going too far? Um, and no one has a particularly good answer to that. My bottom line is it would be much better for the United States and India to have serious conversations about these kind of situations today, not on the weekend when they blow up on, in, on them, and not on the weekend when you can't find the playbook because you've misplaced it. Dan, can I just add a Sure, quick. I think Bruce is being a bit modest here, and for all the students in the room, do a quick Google on the 1999 Cargill crisis, and you will find Bruce's paper that he did some years ago for the Center for the Advanced Study of India that lays out in detail his personal recollection of President Clinton's crisis diplomacy, uh, 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 in fact, during the actual Cargill crisis and the role that the United States played in helping to defuse that. Although things have changed considerably since then, we now have the prospect of uh, uh, tactical nuclear weapons in the arena as well. So it's a little more complicated. But yes, uh, Bruce does have some very good insights into what happened there. Sir, here in the front. Yes? Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. I always love attending Hudson, but you have those group people who come who really care about the topic, national security, ask good questions. And those other people come who care it's about India or whatever the subject is, and we want to pick the brains of those people who know a hell of a lot more about India than I do. I'm the second. So my question concerns India and India and China, but in what I consider a unique way. Uh, a lot of people are very concerned about the Chinese threat in Africa. Most times you talk to the Chinese people, China, they say, no, no, we're fighting the Indians. We want to have the same type of fifth column, meaning many, Indi many Chinese living in Africa, so we can have the kind of relationship that India has with the amount of Indi um, expat Indians who live there. Does India have much of a policy as Africa? They certainly have a presence when you go to each one of the countries. But politically, I don't see them with the same type of summits. They have some summits, but the same kind of push. Is India interested in Africa, and do they view it as competition with China? Who's going to take that? Tanvi, you want to have a quick shot? Well, I mean, I think, uh, Ambassador Kapoor can have a quick one as um, well. I mean, firstly, I think you know, India does have historic links with Africa in a way that China does not. It goes back to British imperialism and, and Indians who went over at that time. Uh, India does not see Africa as uh, just as a monolithic continent. Uh, the presence is very different. The links are very different in different parts. Uh, more obviously with uh, the countries that were formerly ruled by the Brits than, for example, with the French. I think there is an effort to reach out on a more consistent basis, uh, even in collaboration with the U.S. Uh, uh, yesterday, the Indian Foreign Ministry spokesperson talked about uh, the U.S. and India collaborating uh, in three areas, kind of in third countries areas, and one of them was uh, potentially Africa. I think, uh, uh, you know, it's not, it's not just driven by China. It is, it is more a question of 
Indian, uh, not just historic links, but Indian businesses want to, wanting to uh, seek markets there. Uh, there, there are uh, also kind of uh, incipient links with various ministries interacting. Uh, there's capacity building going on. So I think it's very, uh, it's, it's kind of fairly broad. Uh, the motivations aren't necessarily state-driven. That's another difference. Uh, and I think it's interesting because you actually see the Chinese approach and how that's changed over the years. One thing you've seen, and people who know China better, and China in Africa uh, better than I do, point out how even, even China has been looking at, initially Indian, the Indian government was looking at what Chinese companies were doing in Africa. Now China has been looking at what India has been doing in Africa because it's considered, because it's not been as political, uh, it was considered slightly more welcome uh, by especially certain sections of the public. But India is also just, I mean, just to add, uh, the sheer amount of investment that China has, I mean, there's not, there's no comparison at the moment. So in terms of a catch up, and I'm not one for China, India races, uh, but there's, there's a huge gap. Ambassador Kapoor. Uh, I'm going to discuss this issue uh, from a different angle altogether. Firstly, if you see the acceptance of uh, India as a partner country, in the countries where I've worked in Africa, in Latin America, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, the acceptance is very, very high. It's very easy for Indian companies to establish themselves, to you know acquire local companies, to be welcomed. Now, if I, uh, in my discussions with the leaders of many of these countries, they will tell me very clearly that we have the offers of Chinese aid, Chinese assistance, but we are not accepting it. We have been keeping it on hold for the last five years or more. And we would like India to come in and occupy this space. And will your country do that? Well, India is not an aggressive partner. It's not going into those assets. It's not going to grab those assets. It's not been doing that. So you have seen the play out in the global arena very clearly in front of your own eyes. When you had the Olympics in China, amongst all the countries through which the Olympic torch had to pass, there were protests against China in almost all of these countries. So just sitting down and contemplating that if we were to have the Olympics in India, in how many countries in the world would the people come out onto the streets to protest against India and Indian Olympics? It would be very difficult Great. to get people out other than in China and maybe in Pakistan. But in Bangladesh, if you were to get people out, you would have to pay them at least two, three hundred taka to get them out on the streets okay. and give them lunch boxes for them to protest against India. So overall, uh, India is not uh, seen as an aggressive partner in any context. Uh, you know, India has had relations with Africa for a very long time. So in the long term, uh, this will this is going to only expand. The acceptance of India is going to increase because we are not uh, people who seek out or aggressively grab assets, but we do have requirements. We do collaborate, uh, and the on the energy security, on the food security, uh, there are a lot of uh, efforts which are going on joint collaborations. And India's net aid for the last few years to these African countries, to the other uh, least developed countries, to the developing countries, has m been much more than the net aid flowing into India. Thank so, you. Th thank you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an important point. Uh, the lady just next to you. Uh, yeah. Um, Bina. Bina Sarwar. I'm a journalist. Um, uh, thank you all for your fascinating presentations, for your fascinating presentations. Um, there's something that I, that I just, it's a quick comment and then a question uh, to all of you, probably to, uh, to Mr. Rydell more than anybody else, is, you know, that you have, these 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 uh, relationships, India and China, and uh, uh, the United States and China, 
and the United States and India, and in the past, all of them have had this history of hostility. I mean, you know, we, we, ha we, we haven't forgotten that, right? And now you have these huge economic partnerships between all, all three of them. And my observation is just that I wish that we could have a similar kind of a, a trade relationship between India and Pakistan, and we know what hinders that, so I'm not going to ask you to get into that. But my question is, um, what, what you said, uh, Mr. Rydell, about um, you know, the options in case there's another strike, there are, of course, lots of options ranging from fairly benign to very aggressive. But my question is, isn't that exactly what the attackers want? And, and what kind of response would be least likely to play into their hands? Thank you. No, you're absolutely right. That is, that is the purpose of uh, terrorist attacks like that. And that is why um, successive Indian uh, leaders, uh, Vajpayee, um, Manmohan Singh, and others have uh, refrained from moving forward. But there comes a point uh, in politics where it becomes very hard to do that anymore. I'll put it to you this way. I cannot imagine an American president who would say, okay, big deal, we'll move on. Um, now, we've had successive Indian prime ministers who've chosen not to say it in those terms, but to, in effect, do it that way. And it, it becomes harder and harder. And I think it will be very difficult, particularly for a prime minister elected with the persona and the um, uh, uh, political person that Narendra Modi has uh, to be in that kind of position. We all want our leaders to demonstrate uh, uh, great wisdom uh, and maturity uh, in crisis moments like that. Um, don't count on it. Yes, sir. <laughs> The question mark, will strategic partnership emerge between India and the United States? My observation is a good example be between uh, Ailes and Dubai, partnership has already emerged. <laughs> <laughs> we would hope that the ambitions are greater okay, so than that. If, <laughs> if, and one last question. Yeah. I will take it from the back of the room because I haven't uh, uh, had, you have had your hand up for quite a while. Please, go ahead. I'm from the Embassy of Serbia, a newcomer in Washington. My question might sound simple. Uh, question is uh, whether India as a superpower sui generis within non-aligned movement might have some opportunity with the United States to improve some uh, ongoing political process here or there. Should I answer that, uh, Ambassador Hakani? Yo, go ahead, Ambassador. Well, I, if I see the uh, strategic uh, threats uh, faced by the U.S. today and by the global community uh, in the future um, between terrorism and, you know, what has been called by some uh, uh, analysts as expansionism of China in the South China Seas, in the Indian border, uh, on the Tibet issue. So many threats which are there, the aspect of uh, the pivot to Asia policy of the U.S., the partnership which can reasonably have some success of solution in the future is a very strong and a very soundly based partnership between US and India. 
India has the strength, India has the manpower, India has the military, India has a landmass, India has a neighbor to China, and India has the confidence in its own future to be able to stand up to China or any other threat in the world. In terrorism, we have performed exceedingly well in the sense we have the second largest population of Muslims in the world after Indonesia, and hardly any Muslim from India is a partner in global terrorism. So till US understands that this basic dynamic is going to be one of the deciding factors for the global evolving global scenarios in terms of all the conflict uh, theaters of conflict everywhere and that India is one country which can partner with the US but on a very different basis as an equal partner or as a dialogue partner but not as a subset or as a uh, what people have termed as client state so till that shift takes place in the perceptions and in the interactions uh, this may not fructify but this is the only way that will really lead to some sort of uh, greater collaboration ultimately to tackle the problems on not just these fronts on so many other fronts of uh, democracy of uh, you know right. the threats which the nations are facing in the middle east in so many other arenas okay. so that is my hypothesis i don't know how far uh, it will see the light of the day Thanks. but uh, that is a hope and Thanks. this visit of uh, prime minister modi to that extent will be a game changer because there is going to be greater realization of this aspect on both the sides thank, thank you, you. Um, final comments from tanvi I think it's good to be optimistic. We're all talking about the partnership, but I think it's important to keep one thing in mind. I don't like to use the word non-alignment because I think it's a bit dated. I like to use the word diversification. And that is something that every Indian government, irrespective of party, has followed, which means having multiple partnerships. And so, yes, we will see a visit, uh, but India will probably welcome President Putin, for example, in India in October. Um, Mr. Modi, over the last few months, has has made sure and tried to develop a whole range of partnerships. So I think we shouldn't be talking about kind of a move away from that uh, in any significant way. One thing to keep in mind, for example, is even Prime Minister Vajpayee and many of his uh, his uh, counter or his uh, uh, team, uh, they might not have used the word uh, non-alignment. They use the word phrase strategic autonomy a lot. That hasn't gone away. Um, I would also just say uh, one thing. The India and U.S. are within that context, though, having to grapple with the situation where the U.S. is used to dealing with allies. It's used to do, dealing with adversaries. This kind of in-between uh, country, this friends plus or partner plus, is something I think the U.S. is going to have to learn. And I think there's already been progress. I think there's an understanding that India does not... And as India says, it's not a Japan or the UK. And I think there is understanding here of that. This is why you see repeatedly American officials saying we're not asking India to be an ally. Uh, on the Indian side, there has to be learning that, yes, while there is this diversification, the reality is that if you look at the relationship in terms of depth and breadth, there is a difference in terms of India's relationship uh, with the U.S. This is not a hub-and-spoke partnership model. All those relationships are not equal. Uh, Alyssa, do you want to have some last comments? Um, uh, no. No. Anybody else? Other than <laughs> Good. Okay, well, we just finished on time, even if we didn't start on time, which is an accomplishment. Uh, thank you all very much for being such a good audience. And I would like to thank, I would like to thank our panelists for making the time. Thank you all.